Hello and welcome to Industrious. I am Micaiah Shaw and this is episode two. I'm excited to get started with part two of As Your Clothes Were Saying, which is my thesis from my year's New St. Andrews College. We covered part one a couple weeks ago in my first episode of this podcast. We talked about the concept of subcultures and what subcultures really look like in our time period and the age of Instagram and TikTok and um, worldwide trends that change week to week. Um, Human beings were created to make sense of the world that they live in. We literally produce sense by interpreting the things we experience through sight, sound, smell, taste, and touch. It is through these interactions with and interpretations of our surroundings, as well as the way in which we externalize meaning to our neighbors, that culture is formed. In his book, Cultural Complexity, Hanners explains the dimensions of cultural formation through a flow metaphor. When you look at a river from afar, it may look like a blue or green or brown line across the landscape, something static and unmoving. But at the same time, if you were to walk into that river, you would feel the pull of the current and the changing temperatures. You cannot step into the same river twice. And like a river, culture is always moving and changing as it must in order to survive. Even when you may perceive a societal or political or cultural structure, it is entirely dependent on the ongoing process in which it exists. The same goes for the development of fashion. Each new style or fad depends upon the last, which depends on the ones before that. And the trends that are in season now will always influence the ones that will appear next summer or in the next five years. However, in the details, there are differences. Some looks are timeless, White and black color combinations will always work, and a blouse and pencil skirt are classics. Other looks happen over and over again, like florals and prints or fur coats, and some are short-lived or happen only once. Think of radical street fashion like backwards heels or Lady Gaga's meat dress. As fashion flows, it is everywhere and available to everyone. Whether it be through physical interaction or a variety of media outlets, people and their tastes are very accessible and present to others. Walking down the street, you exchange information with every passerby, intentionally or unintentionally. Your presence, words, physical appearance all render you interpretable. Obviously, the internet, movies, magazines, photos, and music all carry meanings of their own. They bring about an abundance of different mediums for externalization. And clearly, they also have an impact on the distribution of fashion rules and examples to all sorts in many different places. The medium is the message. There is a universally accepted idea that media communication is not simply about the content that it shares or distributes. Media communication is also made up of the symbol systems and preferences and demographics of each individual medium. Take social media outlets as an example. Twitter draws a certain clientele and communicates a specific type of message in so many characters. Instagram, on the other hand, has completely different aesthetic goals, content goals, and demographic goals. The same could be said about newer mediums that were not included in my thesis because they did not quite 
have much of a following, TikTok has its own crowd that uses its platform. Media has extended human experience and social life in many ways beyond the strictly local or physical. The ways in which media can bind time and space can create trouble for conventional assumptions about social relationships, society, and culture. Here we return to the issue that we discovered in our discussion of subculture. When previously discussing parent cultures and subcultures and rebellion and clothing statements, such as those that were clearly defined in decades like the 80s, sociologists did not have to take into account the same mass forms of media that we have today. If we look at Hanners' theory of cultural flow as a reliable analogy for how fashion develops, I would argue that Anne Hollander's concept of art-dependent fashion applies more clearly to the cultural atmosphere of this year. Fashion as we know it thus began roughly with the rise of towns in the middle class, along with the consolidation of monarchical power. Until the 12th century, in Hollander's view, clothes show a fairly static simplicity of shape. Hollander points out that at the beginning of fashion, clothing distinguished between classes. Learning exactly how clothing was made or who it was sold to in the past does not produce much knowledge about how it looked or felt. Hollander would say that these specific qualities depended on how clothes were inwardly believed to appear when they were culturally accepted as looking natural to the eye. At such a time, ordinary people would find their clothes to be aesthetically pleasing if they appeared to harmonize with the style of art in which nature was, at that time, made to look real. So this correspondence is what would produce a feeling and desire to look natural. Anne Hollander deals with the way in which clothes pictured in the media, forms such as sculpture, paintings, television, or photography, have been connected to clothes in real life. Specifically, how consumers of media relate to the clothing portrayed in that media. In most of civilized Western life, the clothed figure looks more persuasive and comprehensible and enjoyable in art than it does in reality. Changes of style in clothing are therefore permanently linked to the changes in the medium of art by which the human body is commonly represented. All popular fashions, like petticoats or bell-bottoms or bulky sweaters, were considered beautiful in their time. Hollander argues because of the art that visually represented them that way. The natural beauty of cloth and the natural beauty of, of bodies have been taught to the eye by the various media. All fashions happened because the popular pieces of clothing were thought to look the best on the body type that was being promoted at the time. Another quote from her book, Seeing Through Clothes, reads, The tight-laced waist, the periwigged head, and the neck collared in a millstone ruff, along with flattened breasts and blue-jeaned legs, have all been comfortable, beautiful, and natural in their time, more by the alchemy of visual representation than by the force of social change. She gives another striking example of her argument's cultural application through a discussion of women's fashion. Expressing female social and sexual freedom in dress, for example, is possible in a number of ways, and it has been accomplished a number of different times. The way it is done depends wholly on how the look of the new clothing differs from the way clothing has been looking before. The look of freedom for leg movement 
can be conveyed by adopting trousers, by shortening skirts, or even by wearing loose flowing dresses. It is not enough to say that women adopted short skirts after the First World War because they symbolized sexual freedom and permitted easy movement of the legs. Since these practical and symbolic effects could have been accomplished in many other ways. Some aesthetic reason, some demand internal to the changing look of women and of clothes over quite a long period required that legs appear just then. Obviously, it is not so simple to define why people copy the dress and mannerisms of the people they admire, but Hollander's point is that the surface mechanism is purely visual. Important connotations and associations such as connections to a person's childhood or religious beliefs or music taste or political thought may underlie the look, but each of the individual elements of it have no concrete meaning by themselves. Pieces of clothing depend upon context for their meaning and copying someone's clothes is an aesthetic act. People choose what they will wear and how they will look while wearing it as they go to work and run errands and walk down the street according to the way it may reference certain pictures of friends, of different media or nature moving that they feel they wish to resemble. Clothing is described as most desirable and most often spoken of as comfortable when it allows the wearer to go about their daily tasks with little to no steady effort. What it creates, however, is not so much a good physical feeling as a satisfying self-image, a certain confidence and sense of rightness that needs no adjustments. And as this project hopes to make very clear, people speak with their clothes, not in one specific statement, but in a sort of story made up of linked pieces that are then put together by the observers. The Fashion Reformation At the time of the Reformation, the Catholic Church regularly bought and sold offices amongst the clergy, offered salvation through indulgences, held Mass in Latin, a foreign tongue to most, prayed through dead saints, and practiced priestly confession. All of these things put physical layers and barriers between God and man. 500 years ago, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door of the church in Wittenberg, opposing these unbiblical restrictions placed on the common people. In the years following, the church experienced its largest split. What Luther originally meant to cause repentance and change in the Catholic Church actually brought about another, the Protestant Reformed Church. Many reformers followed closely behind to address a host of different issues as the Reformed Church strove to realign itself with biblical truth. One of the main problems, the problem of image and icon worship, is closely connected to the conception of clothing before the Reformation and after. I will be addressing that specific issue in this article. In the 1600s, a time when clothing spoke primarily of social status and profession, the concept of fashion followed closely on the heels of art. The church had venerated images and icons for hundreds of years by the time the Renaissance began, at which point paintings of Christ and saints began to shift away from the traditional. For example, the Virgin Mary began to be portrayed in modern fashionable dress, a thing that was accepted at the time by some and vehemently opposed by others. To compromise fidelity to tradition was considered a serious problem as it struck at the very core of the legitimacy of images whose value in the Catholic Church comes from its antiquity. 
If the substitution mechanism which allowed for a Catholic to pray to or through a painting of a saint somehow failed, then the image's link with antiquity would be severed. For some time, a new article of clothing painted on the Virgin Mary was considered a misrepresentation, something obviously fashioned in the present. To worship it would be idolatry. So while the church attempted to stabilize the iconography market, they simply ended up deciding upon a traditional Byzantine and Russian look. Pope Urban VIII required that images be in keeping with what the Catholic Church has allowed since the earliest of times, because holiness befits the house of God. Examples of these changes can be found in countless pieces of late medieval and early Renaissance art. The elaboration of architectural and interior settings in paintings, the new levels of attention paid to textures of clothing and furniture, a new concern for details like individual bodies and faces and hair caused much consternation amongst traditionalists. Many thought that Western painters had made the fatal error of rendering the self-stylings of modern secular men in their paintings. This disagreement, however, was not always simply between the Catholics and the Reformed, but also occurred among Latins and Byzantines between the West and the East. The scandalized reaction to modernization of images illustrated earlier was met with the, won the wonder and admiration of the European Catholics. When confronted with the living, timeless tradition of antiquity embodied in Byzantine dress, even before a developed language of art criticism was in place, that is, before the 17th century, Words such as vanities, the secular, and decorum were applied most forcefully in the writings of religious reformers. The idea that paintings themselves, and not just the content they recorded, changed with the times became a major object of the reformers' criticisms regarding the secular bleeding into religious art. When church leaders accused artists of dressing their figures like prostitutes, they were not only referring to immodest or revealing clothing, but also categorically to the introduction of modish, fashionable, or highly contemporary clothes. Like previously mentioned in the article on subculture, that which is new and fashionable most commonly originated in what was thought to have been outrageous and unfit for polite society, let alone the church. At the time of the reformers, the process of clothing changing with the times was thought to be a simple, concrete example of the vanity of earthly things. Historically, clerics were, and in some cases still are, distinguished from their contemporaries by wearing plain robes that signal their independence from time and custom. This is the way that it ought to be, in the reformers' minds, since clothing that changes with time, modern clothes that are arbitrary, excessive, and vain, is secular and subject to history. Through these letters from church leaders to artists, we see that the concept of spiritual reform had been likened to the process of restoring a work of art since the time of the Reformation and even before. In stark contrast to these de developments within the Catholic Church during the Renaissance stands the prevailing reformed thought on art and dress. While the different factions of Catholicism discussed which form of opulence was most conducive to images and dress, one predominant trait governed the role of the aesthetic in reformed religious life and worship. Simplicity must always be preferred.
This clarity of simplicity was elected over a more luxurious aesthetic, since the goal of simplicity goes hand in hand with the deeper reformed desire to aid and not to hinder a person's religious understanding. Clarity is able to be expressed through aesthetic simplicity in a way that is not possible with confusing iconographic clutter. The black academic robes adopted by the Protestant clergy provide an example of this simpler concept of aesthetics. During a time when expensive black clothes had been adopted by the up-and-coming European middle classes as a way to dress more luxuriously without stepping on the toes of nobility, who were, by law, the ones allowed to wear colors, the Protestant Reformation gave the dark costumes a new symbolism. Black became the color of Calvinism in protest against the lavish splendors of Catholicism. Leaders such as Martin Luther and John Calvin donned semi-academic styled black robes as a movement against the tonsure of the Catholic clergy. Calvin argued very vocally against images and art, and therefore, by extension, extravagant clothing with his argument for the unchanging eternal essence of God. Calvin laughs at the Catholics' argumentation for icons and their biblical permissibility. Like many other Protestant leaders, he thought the Lutheran Reformation had not gone quite far enough and so left unfinished the work of reforming Christian worship. For example, the Lutheran culture greatly disapproved of Calvin's ideas on the Christian's responsibility for cultural involvement and advancement, which we'll get to in a little bit. In a sharp polemic against the preachers of a false faith, i.e. capitalism, Simon Hafferitz argued the demand for evangelical poverty from God's proclamation that, he's, that his chosen people would suffer for their faith. Some in the Lutheran Protestant faith demanded a life of contrast from society for believers through the conduct of a crucified life with poverty, misery, misery suffering, and tribulations of the world. The innerworldly ascetic, as described in Max Weber's On Law and Economy and Society, was to act within the institutions of the world while remaining opposed to them as an instrument of God. In religions which can be characterized by inner world asceticism, the world appears to the religious virtuoso as his responsibility. A deflection of status has been rooted in these self-mortifying sensibilities, which stretch back to the Protestant Reformation, where, as previously mentioned, an aversion to outward displays of wealth was considered a higher form of moral character. This is why, even now, high-end and classic clothing can often be described as simple or unassuming. For example, among some of the wealthiest individuals in American culture, modesty and understatement were considered much more preferable than ostentatious exhibitions of financial means. This valuing of simplicity has led to the development of fashion classics such as Coco Chanel's little black dress, which insinuated social superiority in the raiments of penury. In the words of Annette Lynch and Mitchell Strauss from their book, Changing Fashion. What makes these pieces expensive is not ostentatious opulence, but the quality of the product and its construction. While Lutheran religious devotion had historically been accompanied by a rejection of mundane affairs, including economic pursuit, Weber showed that certain types of Protestantism, notably Calvinism, 
were, by contrast, supportive of the reasonable pursuit of economic gain and the worldly activities dedicated to it. He saw these socially involved activities as endowed with moral and spiritual significance. Weber argued that there were many reasons to look for the origins of capitalism in the religious ideas of the Reformation. In particular, the Protestant ethic, or more specifically, Calvinist ethic, motivates believers to work hard, be successful in business, and reinvest their profits in further development rather than frivolous pleasures. In a way, still consistent with the idea of rejecting the frivolous which Luther and his followers subscribed to, Calvin encouraged Christians to engage with culture and help to develop society in God-honoring ways instead of removing from culture altogether. The notion of a person's calling meant that every individual had to take action as an indication of their salvation. Being a static member of the church was not enough. This development within the reformers' ideologies resulted in the flourishing capitalistic culture that societies all over the world enjoy today. Through the teachings of Calvin, reformed Christians have been given the spiritual freedom to work hard and to succeed at the specific tasks that God has given them. And when they are faithful, they are prospered. So while Catholics, Protestants, and the Eastern Orthodox argued for years about how man is supposed to make an image of God, God had already created his own creative images and given them dominion over the world in which he placed them. Since the Reformation and since Calvin, Protestants have begun to treat the church as the image of Christ, worshiping and glorifying God by serving their fellow Christians. And as obedient believers serve believers, the cup quickly overflows to bless unbelievers in God's marvelous plan of common grace through Christian capitalism. Thank you so much for tuning in today to listen to the second half of my thesis and my second episode ever. Um, I appreciate all of my listeners who tune in, and I'm excited to share the next thing with you all um, once I have that next thing ready. Um, I would Like I said before, this podcast is going to be pretty much a mixed bag. The next thing you can look forward to is actually going to be a video, and that's going to be um, a video about sprucing up our kitchen, a DIY video with a really fun before and after. I'm excited to share it with you all. So you can be looking forward to that, and I will see you next time. Bye-bye.